For those with drive, the Standard H podcast is a loose conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those who've grown companies. Today's guest has occupied a slot in the latter category. He also happens to be a friend of mine. His name is Brett Weiner, and we discuss his journey from working for his parents' construction business at the age of 11 to designing one-off pieces for nicks and watches. Brett shares a common attribute of several guests hosted on this podcast, and that's a distaste for school, which seems funny given he discovered a way from being a C student in college majoring in economics to becoming a double major student with a 4.0 GPA. Brett also shares his foray into working for a division of Burton Snowboards, the importance of being hungry to reach your goals and objectives, and how it shouldn't always be about the dollars at the end of the day. What I love about Brett is his selfless approach to his work. He thinks about the consumer, and he has a natural bias towards what's best for companies for which he's worked, as opposed to designing what he himself likes, and I find his approach to be so admirable, especially as someone growing companies he doesn't own. I always enjoy my conversations with Brett because they always exhibit a certain level of quality. We share a lot of the same interests such as surfing, snowboarding, and even cycling, and these are all covered, but there's also a deeper element whenever we get together that I always leave wishing we had more time, and this episode is certainly no exception, so I hope you enjoy it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, uh... Wanted to thank you for taking the time to to be on the pod. Oh yeah, no problem. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's been a while. You know, obviously we haven't seen each other in a while. Uh, you know, minus yesterday's audio test. Yeah. But um, the hair's gotten longer, and you're three thousand miles away. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think it's been to to put a date on it. I think it's been like four years. No way. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. I, I moved from California like three plus years ago. So, well, you know what? I met my wife a little over three years ago. So that makes sense because I last saw you prior to meeting her. Yeah. And I remember you telling me about her, I think. Like oh. it was at the time that you had moved from Encinitas kind of down south a little bit. And yeah. you were just kind of giving me the whole lowdown. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so crazy, man. Well, I don't know how much you've heard these podcasts, but we always start out like the beginning type of days, the, the early days. Of Mr. Brett Weiner, what did uh, where, where were you? Where were you born? I don't. I'm gonna find out a lot about you that I've never known about you. So be prepared. <laughs> no, cool. I was um, I was born in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is like the part of Connecticut pretty much that touches up to New York, New York City, what like Westchester County. Yeah, I think John Mayer's from Fairfield, isn't he? Yeah, he's so he's from Fairfield proper, and then the okay. county's called Fairfield County. And then my town was a little town called Weston, Connecticut. Got it. Yeah. Sweet. So tell me, what did your parents do when you were growing up? Um, so, so my family has, well, they did. It's, it's, it's now not in business anymore, but my family owned a, a construction business. And they had, they had owned it for a long time, since 1922. It had been oh, in wow. the family. Yeah. And uh, they, so they were a little bit more of a specialty trade. We did glass and industrial architectural metal. Um, so think like, like storefronts and shopping malls and kind of glass facades on buildings, like bigger, you know, bigger commercial stuff, not necessarily like Anderson window sliding door installation type stuff. Right. So no residential stuff. Yeah. My dad, my dad said that that stuff was just too much of a headache. So yeah, you have, you usually have one meeting probably, or, or, or much fewer meetings with the commercial projects and, and no emotion Versus like somebody's house, you're dealing with like their baby. You know what I mean? And I think he felt like the commercial projects were usually built to a certain standard, even if they were old. And if you stepped into someone's house and started doing residential projects, you had no idea. Right. Like what had been done or who had done the work to it. And then also like, you know, if you go to the job and you do the job, you have to leave it perfectly. So if you inherit this completely diseased situation and you try and hack it into place um, and it doesn't work out, who who's the customer going to call? Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I've, I guess I've never really looked at it that way, mainly probably because I've never worked construction. <laughs> but um, 
now did your mom work for the company or was she focused on you and like do, wait do you have siblings no i'm an only i'm an only child okay so yeah. was mom working or just focusing on you running around yeah no my parents my parents worked pretty much as soon as i was able to go to daycare my parents went back to work or at least right. you know my mom went back to work i don't think my dad ever took any time off he he kind of like never took vacation and insisted on being at the business on a daily basis you know got it yeah and then my mom you know i think financially they they really needed to it just it made a lot of sense and my mom went back to work pretty much as soon as she could and she was like a paralegal in in law offices and then eventually you know as they got older my grandmother passed away so that's one less person working in the family business my mom transitioned over and started running the office at the family business. Oh, I see. 10 or 15 years or so. So is, so you said they no longer own the business, right? Yeah. My dad, my dad basically wanted to retire and got out. Got it. So I think, I think the nature of the business itself had changed to the point where it was really, really tough to kind of make any money. You know, and, and in, in at like 60 plus years old, you're kind of like, what am I doing right now? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not in a bad way. I think it was always kind of part of his objective was to take the business as far as he could, as right. far as it made sense for him to do it, you know, um, and kind of, they didn't really sell it. They just kind of closed it down and offloaded the properties and, you know, so. Interesting. So. Did he transition into anything else or did he just say, um, that's it. My work career is done. Yeah. He retired into, or he, uh, transitioned into retired life, you know? Got it. Yeah. Which he earned big time. Yeah. That's awesome. I think I could count the family vacations we took as a family on like one hand. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've, you know, my wife and I talk about this often about, like how important it is to enjoy your youth <laughs> and especially before you have kids, obviously like to go and do, and before you're, you're focused on like really just being kind of a slave to the school year schedule, you know, cause you only get so much time off with your kid being in school. But, um, well, that's interesting. What, um, do you play any instruments? Aren't you, don't you play something? I, I've dabbled with, you know, music through my whole life. I started out playing the saxophones and I played, I played those in like jazz ensembles and things all the way up into college. Oh, cool. Yeah. In high school, I played the bass in a band. Bass guitar? Yeah. Bass guitar. I mean, I kind of like fumbled my way through it, but right. you know, they needed a bass player and um, we made it work because we were all buddies. So what, uh, what were the bands you're into? It, back, back in, in high day. school, for example, yeah, yeah, we were, I don't know, like heavy metal and kind of grunge alternative, you know, you know, like kids in the '90s, high school kids in the '90s, flannels, yeah. ripped jeans, you know. I feel like there's somewhat of a divide, not a divide, but like you were either like it's kind of like the Beatles and the Stones, but you know, with Pearl Jam versus Nirvana. Like, were you did you gravitate to one or the other? I like the, you know, it's funny you bring that up because there's definitely a divide there. And I think I was definitely more into like the raw energy of Nirvana than I was like the kind of the singer songwriter nature of Eddie Vedder. Yeah. You know, and and I think they're both rad, like, so no disrespect to either one of them. But the one that personally spoke to me more was just that angst that Nirvana kind of let off. So, yeah, that's why, yeah, that's why I sort of compare it to the the Stones and the Beatles, just because it's like, the Beatles are definitely more singer songwriter for sure, in my yeah. opinion. Anyway. Yeah, and the Stones are just rocking. You know, a lot of the songs the Stones played weren't even their songs. They're like old, yeah, they were covers. songs, old yeah. country. You know, it's like, and and they just made it their own, which I think is super cool. You know, versus the whole singer songwriter. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, what subjects in school were you gravitating towards, like in high school? Were you always into design, or were you just like geeking out on math, or like what what was high school like? Yeah, the, so the whole design creative thing um, was definitely a left turn for me, for sure. Uh, in high school, like, I didn't really like school that much. I didn't, right. you know what I mean? Like, I did it, and it was interesting, and I, I liked doing well at school, but none of it was like, oh, man, this is super cool. This is something that I could see myself doing. 
So you mean that like scholastically or like were you just like anti-school socially as well? No, I think it was more like I was just going through the motions of classwork yeah. and getting it done. You know what I mean? And and I didn't I wasn't awesome at that. A lot of my peers around me, they were really good at like no matter what it was, they could focus and just like make it happen and, and do well. Yeah. But I think, you know, I learned later in my life, my secret to success is to be like really personally engaged and interested in what I'm doing. Um, because it's funny, like when I was in high school, I was perceived, you know, internally, like kind of tight, so tight circles, like, like right. as lazy, like, like this kid's lazy. And I think coming from a family of like neurotic workers, you know, any hinkling of laziness is like, is no good, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So kind of like, I kind of came out of high school being like, kind of thinking I was lazy, you know? Huh. Um, and I kept telling myself, I'm going to do this. Like when you grew up in Southern Connecticut, and I, I, I know you're kind of from like a nice area too, but it's like when you grew up in Southern Connecticut and especially in, in like a Jewish family, there's like a handful of jobs that you can respectably do. You can be a doctor, you can be a, a lawyer. lawyer, you can get into <laughs> banking and finance. You know right. what I mean? And it's like, none of those things made sense to me, but I was trying to force myself through the motions to make it happen. And hope that like at some point it took, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just never, it, it never spoke to me. Um, at some point through college, I took a couple kind of like drafting courses in high school, like architecture. Um, and it kind of led me into like CAD programs and doing design with the computer. But again, it was never any, it was like the least intensive of the elective courses <laughs> you know, that could help my GPA kind of thing. Yeah. The path of least resistance. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was interesting because I kind of had this construction technical background from my family's business. I mean, I've been, I had been working there since I was 11. Oh, wow. So it was kind of cool to figure out like how to put a plan together, like really understand like how to build a blueprint or a schematic, you know? Sure. Um, but I, you know, I kind of, I didn't know what to do with that. It was just kind of fun. And it got me a few decent grades in school, like up the GPA. But again, like it wasn't doctor, it wasn't lawyer, it wasn't, you know what I mean? Right, um, right. So I was in school and kind of doing my thing. And I was an, I was an economics major, which I have an economics degree, you know? I, Interesting. I kind of like did that, you know? And where'd you go? Did you go to Vermont? Yeah, I went to the University of Vermont. Yeah. And I was doing the econ thing. And again, I was like an okay student forcing myself to read the chapters, forcing myself to memorize the content, like getting, getting through, you know, when you weren't on the chairlift. <laughs> yeah. Right. Some semesters, some semesters were better than others. You know what I mean? And, and, sure. and a friend of mine said, I've got this project and I, he's like, it's really killing me. He's like, I got to make a calendar. I said, you have to make a fucking calendar. Like that's yeah. your homework. <laughs> you know, I was like, I can help you with that. Right. So we sat down and we started doing the computer programs and stuff. And he kept like, he kept bringing these projects to me of like logos and I got to do this or I got to do that. And we were kind of like just going through it and like, it was fun. You're like, what is this kindergarten homework that you get? Yeah. <laughs> so one day he comes in and he's like, Hey, by the way, like, dude, we got an A. I'm like, you're fucking kidding me. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So I was like, what, what class was that? So it's graphic design. So I was like, I'm going to sign up for that. Cause I need some good grades again. So I started signing up and I was like, this is actually kind of cool. I love that he said that we got an A. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I was like, this is kind of cool. And I didn't really want like a minor. What the hell's a minor? Like you took two classes and something, you know what I mean? Right. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go all in with the double major. So I, I got two majors. So I got one in economics and then, then a degree in studio art. And everyone thought I was crazy. Like you're, you're a C student. Like, how are you going to do that? And I was like, no, I think there's something to this. And I, and I became the major, I committed half my course schedule to the art and half my course schedule to the econ. And in a semester, I went from a C student to a 4.0. That's insane. Yeah. And I think it was just about that, that balance, that like kind of satisfying mm. both sides of me and not feeling like too locked into one thing or the other. Right. Um, and that's when, you know, design kind of became a real thing for me. That's so, that, that's super cool, man. What, um, what were like some memorable projects that you worked on, you know, barring the calendar? Uh, <laughs> like what, uh, like what was your first project when you, when you decided to switch to being a double major? Like what was the project that stood out for you? 
in school. Yeah. You know, I really just got into painting and photography. Cool. And the and the expressiveness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, like growing up in Southern Connecticut, I can't tell you how many of my friends I would ask, like, what their dads do. What did your dad do? What do your parents do, right? And a lot of them would just say, my dad's a businessman. And I said, but like, what? what do you mean? Like what, no, what totally. is a businessman? Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I think it was foreign to me because I had this very firm understanding of what my family did because it, my dad could drive down the street and say, Hey, I just did that building the other day, or I just right. did this other project. And I was like, I never wanted to get to a point in life where I had kids, which is now like we're there. And my, my kid never understood what I did right. at a core level. And I think that's why like architecture is super cool because like it stands for so long, like a house or a building or a, you know, a great piece of design. And it's, you can point to it and say like, wow, like I was able to do that. Yeah. You know, so quite literally something to show for it. Yeah. You know, so the projects back in school that just stood out were the ones where I was like making actively making producing things. Yeah. Sculpture was always super fun for me, which I think, you know, kind of lends itself again to product design thinking in 3d. Right. Um, how things are put together, how materials fasten to each other. That, that was always super interesting to me. That's cool. So what was your first job out of Vermont? Uh, working. So I kicked around Burlington for a couple of years, just working nightclubs. Um, Wait, what were you doing in nightclubs? I was a, I was a bouncer for a little while. Like I, I played. <laughs> so awesome. kind of like, uh, Right after I graduated college and before I actually started working full time, there was this period where Burlington's a really fun place to be. I don't know if you've been to Burlington, Vermont, but it's just like a cool college town. And even the people who aren't in college are like young professionals. So just the vibe is good. There's a ton of live music and a really cool downtown scene. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started playing semi-pro football. Oh, no way. yeah, Yeah, I played football in high school and wanted to kind of like get back to it for a second so i started playing semi-pro football and working as a bouncer in two of the nightclubs in burlington wow and i did that yeah i did that for about a year what position were you on the field Uh, strong safety oh wow so you're quick yeah yeah i I mean i can play like i can play like up on the line of scrimmage but i can also like step back and do a little bit of pass coverage well i could have not me today (laughs) yeah it was fun it was fun. It was like kind of a, we played all around New England. It was like a sophisticated beer league for football. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So then, okay. So after, after those couple of years, then what, what happened? So again, I, I like, I grew up snowboarding. It's funny. We like haven't even touched upon that yet. Cause it's like just such an important aspect of my life, like being in the mountains, skiing and snowboarding, which was what led me to Vermont, you know, ultimately sure, you, you alluded sure. to it earlier. It's tougher on a college budget to make that happen, like to just constantly be on the slopes. But, you know, we got up there as much as we could. But yeah. Um, and Vermont, in a lot of ways, is the birthplace of, you know, snowboard culture. And if you want to debate that, you could say East Coast snowboard culture. Right. Like for right. those who kind of really dissect how snowboarding came to be what it is. Right. And you know, Burton was a rad company and I was trying to be a creative professional at some level. And well, that's probably the most concentrated population of creative professionals in the state of Vermont. So it made a lot of sense to try and like really focus my attention towards getting in the door there. Then ultimately like the phone rang and said, we've got this thing with Gravis footwear, which is, or was like a, a little footwear subsidiary of Burton. You know, they had like a family of brands. I was down to help out in any way that they would have me, you know? And it's pretty funny because I was actually just telling this story to my father-in-law the other day. Um, but my internship had probably gone about six months and it never really had a hard stop. And I literally just kept showing up every day huh. and I just kept showing up and showing up and doing work and getting work. Right. So, was, you know, if this was something I wanted to do, I just had to kind of keep at it. Right. And then finally one day, and I don't know how long I had been doing it, but it was quite a while. Like I was like, hey to my boss at the time who who was awesome but i was, I was like hey like i kind of need to go like go get a real job you know like <laughs> it's like i'm kind of getting that call from my parents and like i 
I guess I see what they're saying. And, and so it's got to happen. And they're like, Oh, like, like you want a real job? Like we can give you a real job, like a full-time job with like a title. And you're like, damn it. How did I not ask this sooner? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, but the one thing I can say is, you know, I think a lot of people out there and, and it's funny cause I'm kind of in scenarios like this all the time now where it's like, well, what are you going to give me for that? Right. You know, what are you going to give me for my time? Right. And that's a way that you can approach it, but I don't know if it really conveys the love for what you do. Right. You know, and I think right. if you find those things that you really believe in and you want to like, you, you want to pursue them, you need to be hungry about them. And it can't be about the dollars at the end of the day, as much as it needs to be. Right. right. Well, and you proved that, right? Because yeah. by not asking for a real job constantly, it didn't look like you had your hand out. You just wanted to be there. And at the end of the day, I was just showing up, having a good time with a bunch of people that I liked hanging out with. Yeah, but that, that lift ticket money, again, that, that could have come sooner. <laughs> so I was like working nightclubs, like kind of doing this internship thing, playing semi-pro football. That was, that was a pretty fun time, I got to be honest. Yeah, man, I always find that like with me especially, and a lot of people I feel like, life is seemingly always the most fun when you have the least amount of money. Well, what's that? What is it? 75K is kind of where your happiness to dollar income ratio maxes out. Yeah, I've heard 67, but let's just go ahead and consider inflation and call it 75. <laughs> For you and SoCal, that's like a good 250. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so you're at Gravis. You're, you're contributing to footwear. You're snowboarding. At some point, you quit playing football, I would imagine, and stop working at, at the bars. Or yeah, you know, once I think once once that job became a real thing and I finally got a business card, I was like, I gotta I can't be nocturnal anymore working till three in the morning. Right. The travel schedule, the football as much as I love playing fo the football, it was like I couldn't I couldn't commit myself to the schedule. And if I couldn't commit myself to it, I can't be on the team. Just out of respect to what those guys are doing. So what brought you to California? So I had spent a bunch of years in Burlington actually worked a, like worked a job between moving to California and leaving Burton, which was JDK design. Okay. But JDK, you know, after 30 plus years of like being in operation, they actually just kind of shut down. They shut their doors there. The owners had parted ways. It wasn't like a, a reflection of the business, but I think more of the motivation that those guys had at the time. So they shut down. We had to kind of figure out what the next step was. I was freelancing for a little bit. And actually called up my buddy at Nixon, um, you know, just to kind of see what was going on, maybe offer my services up if I could and um, want to get involved with rad brands, right? Because that's, I think, again, like, I am at my best when I love what I'm doing. And I love things that, you know, things like Nixon, things like Burton, um, like contributing to a culture like that. Right. Um, yeah. So he... You know, having talked to my buddy, he, he said, you know what, I, like, I really don't, I'm really not interested in, in hiring you freelance, but I am crafting kind of a position that I think would be perfect for you at the time. Sweet. And I said, Hey, like, that's, that's really cool. Keep me in mind as your conversations go. And, you know, like, I think in business, things happen a lot slower than people admit that they do, you know? So right. I'd say it felt like a couple months went by, you know? So, um, Apparently they're having conversations, working this thing out. The phone rings again. Hey, yeah. we've, you know, again, we've kind of got a clear picture of what this position looks like. It's a product management position. Um, and it's for helping us build a special projects program as like a little bit more of a business unit than just like some things we do on the side. So it was everything from special makeups for like major mall retailers to like limited editions and one of a kind type stuff, like anything that that was done outside of the normal catalog would really be wrapped up into this position. And, and that's super cool. Cause I think that's at the time, it was also like the kind of job, like you, you can't really apply for those types of positions. Right. Cause I think people have a really like set idea of what they're looking for when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. It's almost like a little in-house incubator basically. Yeah. And you just, you just have to be good at dealing with high profile personalities and, 
really good collaborator because there's a lot of creative visions on the table. You know, anytime you start to kind of mash that stuff together. Um, so why do you think your buddy thought you were perfect for that? Uh, he and I had worked together back in the day at Gravis and a lot of, a lot of what we did in the culture of what we were creating with the Gravis footwear was based in the idea of like artists and athletes. And so every season the brand was doing collaborations at one level or another, whether it was hiring artists to do artwork for the brands or creating activations in association with other kind of notable personalities or brands, you know, again, so, um, I had a background in it. That's cool. I don't really get starstruck in the presence of people, even right. when they are like really important to me. Yeah. Um, Cause there's a job to do, you know? Yeah. I've always like just being in sales, I've met tons of famous people just having worked in kind of high profile stores and I was never starstruck. And I think it was more to do with my excitement to talk to them than it was to, I don't know, like rub elbows with them, if that makes any sense. Like, I was always just really interested and stoked to have the conversation. And I always sat down and I was like, they're people too. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool, man. So what were some of the notable projects you worked on at Nixon? Uh, you know, without kidding, there was a lot of projects that were just like kind of behind the table, like VIP, one of a kind type things that I'm, I'm not going to get a ton into them, but it was just super cool to be able to design with virtually no limitations. So were those, were those one-offs driven by XYZ famous person asking for a one-off or were they driven by you know, I don't know, Nixon's CEO being a super fan of this musician and we should create a watch for that person. Like, you how know, did those I think go? it was more, well, first of all, being in, in Southern California, as you know, you're kind of in a hotbed of pro athletes and notable, notable personalities, right? So there's the accessibility is off the Richter charts in terms of like who you can, who you can actually physically sit down with and, and do something with. Right. I think at Nixon, what we tried to do is find people who were local, supporting the local community, obviously notable people, but local, supporting the local community, fans of Nixon, and just made that natural connection. So we weren't really just pulling people off the street. It wasn't like, right. hey, Instagram influencer, like you've got a lot of followers, let's go do something. It was like, no, the, the connection really needs to feel natural. Yeah, yeah. And I think to your point, Encinitas is such a hotbed for that culture, that society of people that like, even if you did go off the street, you could probably find a pro snowboarder. <laughs> and, 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 it, and honestly, the people I was making watches for were rarely an action sports athlete. Interesting. Yeah. Was there a commonality of industry? Pro athlete, you know, like notable designer you know it's just like cool because i think again the action sports guys like they had so much access to nixon you know but you go to you go to baseball nixon's like the not rolex brand right it's like yeah. cool and young and you know what i mean like there's so yeah. many ballers out there if all the guys who are like kind of down to earth or a little bit more surfy about their mentality like they didn't want that you know yeah I would imagine some of that would fall in line with like G-Shock as well. But if you're going custom route, like really like cool colors and stuff like that, Nixon's always been on the forefront of that. And then offering, you know, stuff like tide charts and stuff on the watch anyway. But, right, um, right. okay. I know you don't want to list, I know you don't want to list who you're talking about, but like when you're designing a watch for a notable designer using your words, uh, being cryptic, I don't know who you're talking about, obviously, but that's fine. What is the process like designing for a designer? Are they uber technical about the design? Do they do they kick it back five times saying that's not right? Like, or can you kind of put your foot down? So everyone's different. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And you have to be a good, it's like account management in a way. So you have to understand the needs of who's sitting across the table from you what respect especially with the designer i think it's number one is respect for their creative vision yeah right so you're trying to educate them on how this product is made 
the processes that it has to go through and why things are the way they are while respecting their creative vision and kind of helping guiding them to realize that in the best way possible. Yeah, I would imagine there's some element, even though, you know, some version, be it a small percentage of, of just babysitting. Because there's some people who are just, they sit down in it five seconds, this, 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 and this, good, we're good. Here's my message I want to put on it. Like, it's called it a day. You're right. like, seriously? You know what I mean? But it's, <clears throat> maybe they just designed by feel. Like, if it feels right, run it. Yeah. No, totally. That's awesome. And then there's, there's others that you do multiple versions and send them multiple CADs and they really toil over every decision. And, and that's equally as fun. You know, don't get me wrong. Cause I, yeah. I, I thrive on that creative conversation. So. Yeah. I would imagine like on the former side, like if somebody just sits down and literally it's done in five minutes, part of you's got to feel like, dude, I just hit a grand slam like that. That's awesome. But then the gratification of the back and forth, be it, not five minutes, call it five weeks or five months even, that feels more like teamwork. And it's like, wow, look what we did. So I could see how like the gratification goes, you know, it, it toes the line, you know? Yeah. And I think, again, you just have to, everyone's going to be different, right? So some some people walked in and they wanted, I want to put my, my jersey number on it and I want to do this and I want to do that. And they've got all these ideas, right? And then, and that's cool, right? But then there's other people that are like, yeah, like, give me that one out of the case, but throw a diamond in it at 12 o'clock. <laughs> right. And you're like, all right, like, I could do that too. Like, are you stoked on that? Yeah, you're stoked on that? Like, that's the point. I'd like to take a minute to thank you for listening to the Standard Age podcast. It's certainly been a lot of fun sharing each guest's story, even during the craziest of times over the last year. The good news is it's allowed me to further focus on some of the elements that make Standard Age possible. I've done a ton of product development, some items for well over a year. If you'd like to support the podcast, the least expensive way is to simply rate and review the show on whatever platform you're on. Further, you can visit standard-h.com where you can purchase the brand's apparel or directly support the podcast under the accessories tab. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the show and for all of your support, especially through social media. It's been so much fun interacting with you and all of the great feedback has been wonderful, so thank you. So many of you are into watches, whether you are just starting to collect them or if you're already in deep in discussing the extensive finishing of the movements. In fact, my most listened to episodes have been watch-related. For those of you interested in independent watch companies, Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California might just have what you're looking for. Previous listeners may be familiar with owner Tim Jackson from episode one of the Standard Age podcast. He and his team are certainly a wealth of information while offering incredible customer service. Tim and his team are quite literally made up of family and friends, so I'm confident you'll feel very much a part of their community, even if it's your first visit. Of course, if California is out of reach, definitely visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, or visit Tim's blog, Independent in Time, for a deeper watch dive. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so what are you, what are you doing now? Like, what is your current role? You left Nixon for Corksicle, right? Yeah, so I was... I was at Nixon and Nixon was almost like Neverland, never Neverland or whatever it is from Peter Pan, but it's like, right, I mean, right, right. We were living two blocks from beacons, like awesome surf break. I literally surfed every day. I walked to work on the beach. Like I could have spent forever out there, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was just so far from home, you know, mm -hmm. like so far from, uh my family and my wife's family and and that was really that was really taxing on us um as much as you don't realize it but and you're an east coast guy like i'll call it east coast mid-atlantic over there but um you know three hours doesn't sound like a lot until you realize you're getting out of work at six o'clock and calling back home and all the young kids are already asleep right or you know my parents at retirement age are like kind of winding down for the night like and i'm like Oh, I'm going to go surfing. I'm going to do all this stuff. So we, yeah, like you haven't even eaten dinner yet. Yeah. It was just really hard to kind of, to kind of maintain those that contact. And, and so we, you know, we felt like 
for more than just work reasons, we just needed to get back east. And yeah. coincidentally, at the same time, my phone had rang and it was Corksicle looking for a director of product role. And that was really interesting to me too. And it was also one of the things I liked about Corksicle was up until this point, everything I had done was really focused towards a specific audience, either like a snowboard or a surf audience or even outdoor. I spent a lot of time just doing like outdoor footwear, like right. hiking shoes and stuff. Um, Corksicle was being sold everywhere from Hanson Surf to Lazy Acres to the gift shops, just to name a few in Encinitas kind of main street right there. Yeah. Right. So I was like, wow, like cool brand, cool color palette. I, I have a history of working in, with color. So color is something I always kind of gravitate to. Cool color palette, cool brand, distribution everywhere. Right. right. Like I, I was like, it might be interesting to work on a product that's just for people, not right. for like a specific subset of people. Yeah. So, and, and it was, it really yeah. was. Yeah. Kind of understanding that mindset and how products get made and just a, a whole new audience, you know, to kind of put under my belt is like people I have experience speaking to. What did you take from Nixon and apply at Corksicle? Wow. That's a big question. I think just how to be creative and how to be like, like just let the creativity flow and happen and bring that process and thought process of how do you go from this really abstract concept of exploring the world and things that are interesting to you into all the way down to like an actionable brief. Right. You know, and, and, and actually I was really excited to bring that to Corksicle cause I was kind of helping Corksicle uh, build a product department. Sure. You know, so I wanted to be able to instill foundations, not only from Nixon, but from past jobs too, that I thought, hey, these are really relevant, not because I like them, but because I think they're good for this brand. You know, and that's, I think that's always an important distinction of like where I am in the whole scheme of things is it's, it's not, it's not what I like. Right. It's what's going to be good for our brand and what's going to, you know, really resonate with the audience that we're trying to appeal to. Well, so... Corksicle is obviously one of these modern day bottle companies where it's sort of anti-plastic bottle or, or at least pro bottle that you can reuse, right? Um, what do you consider their somewhat of their competitive advantage, for example? Like what, what distinguishes Corksicle from the 700 other brands that have a similar kind of product positioning? Well, one of the, I think one of the, good things about Corksicle in that space because you're right it's an incredibly generic industry well it's you know, just it's becoming more and more saturated if you've got yeah i mean if you've got a bank account and, and an interest you can go and make vacuum insulated bottles very easily <laughs> but the, i think the one thing Corksicle did that's really in their favor is they they actually own their shape and can defend that oh interesting so while people can go out and make a very Yeti looking product. People can go out and make a very swell looking product. People can go out and make a very hydroflask looking product. Like Corksicle owns this idea of what their bottle looks like. Yeah. Their silhouette. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's not like it never happens, but it definitely gives you some leverage when you're trying to kind of hold your own and defend yourself in that space. Well, yeah. I mean, and you think about it, it's like, I mean, maybe in cars, you could make this argument that like you kind of own your shape a la Porsche 911, but like there aren't many products out there that can say the same. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm just looking around my room here. Like a book is shaped like a book, right? Like the shape of a book never changes unless you're like a children's book. That's like, cut out to the shape of a lion or something, you know, or like, but even a bottle, like let's talk about beer, for example, like a beer bottle has looked the same way, more or less, like a long neck is different than these squatty, you know, IPA bottles, but like, they're pretty much the same everywhere, but corksicle, you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a distinguishable silhouette. Right. Well, that's cool, man. I mean, obviously corksicles doing a bang up job. Um, like, what do you find constitutes good design? Good design? Yeah, how do you define something that's designed well? Without, like, using, like, a cookie cutter kind of... I think it needs... First of all, I think design without function isn't design at all. 
right? So it needs to work well. And, and I think that lends to a lot of different mediums, whether sure. it's graphic design or product design or architecture design, there's, there's a flow, um, there's a priority of things. What am I supposed to pay attention to? How am I supposed to use this, you know, right. as a tool? So there's that, right? Like, so check that box, it's gotta work. Um, I think there needs, and without like specifically saying like, I, I adhere to this genre, it's like, I mean, there needs to be some sort of soul to it. Something that flows um, and is almost like the, the supernatural energy behind what's working that really, I think, becomes the enigmatic quality. Yeah, it brings it to life. Right. And I think it's, I think I've been watching, have you ever heard of Log Wraps? No, wait, wait, what's it called? <laughs> log no, wraps. I haven't. So no. log, log Wraps is a, it's kind of East Coast, but there's a lot of SoCal like longboard surfing, but they do it to hip hop beats. And I've never looked at longboard surfing in such a way before. And like com compared to like, I relate to like, for lack of a better term, shortboarding. Like, I, I hate that I even just said that, but you know what I mean? Like, I, it feels like a snowboard to me. The way the right. turn is a little bit more snowboardy, like in coming from snowboarding, that's like something that, so I never really understood longboard. I was like, longboards are like boats to me, right? They yeah. This big keel out front. You're kind of driving from the back. I just never really got it, but I started watching these log wrap things on Instagram and it's like lock, it's like, longboarding to 90s hip-hop and the creativity that these guys are approaching the waves with anyways it's kind of I, I digress but that's like to me that's a design experience through sport yeah right someone's making an expression to you it's almost like a signature out there on the face of the wave it's almost like painting yeah i was gonna say the same i, I once heard rob machado talk about surfing and how he's all about trying to find different lines to take with surfing, the wave is constantly changing. And there are literally no two that are the same. And that's why I think, I don't even know what my point of bringing this up is, other than like Rob Machado's drawing different lines. You have to draw a line, first of all, that's different from the last because the two waves are different. But I love that he is like all about the exploration of different lines even while surfing the same break, for example, be it pipeline, you know, North shore or first point at Malibu or beacons, you know, a lot of those waves end up looking similar, but even though no two are alike and he, and he still wants to make his experience different all the while. The chop on the face can make it different. No, a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, again, being a bit of a snowboarder, we, my buddy and I, we, we love the back country. We're always like hiking out in the back country. And back when we were living in Burlington, our mountain was Mount Mansfield, which is where Stowe is, which is a nice, a nice East coast Vale resorts kind of mountain, but it's also the highest peak in Vermont. So there's some pretty cool terrain back there. Yeah. So there were two things we always kind of thought about was one, your run is a signature on the hill. So you sure. sign it, right? And like, you want to do it with style. Like you want to have a nice signature, not some like hacked up thing that looks like a third grader made it, right? Right, right. Yeah. Two, we were always kind of like, we called her Miss Mansfield because we had this like certain respect for the mountain. And we said, what's she going to give up to you today? Because you don't, it's very hard to do the exact same line twice and, and, and define exact line because you can, you can hit the same pitch, right? But to to weave in and out of the exact same tree well that you did yesterday is virtually impossible. Yeah. So you never know. You might take this one turn and the trees just open up and you're like, holy shit, like, where am I? This is like, this is Utah, right? Yeah, new new territory. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's just one turn away from where you were yesterday. And so it's like, what what's even the nature going to give up to you today that's going to make, you know, this an awesome experience? Right. Same with the wave. Are you still Burton loyal? I am. I mean, this is this is the first kind of run of Burtons I've bought in a while. I was I was doing LibTech. Like once I stopped working for Burton and I wasn't getting like good deals on them or anything for a minute, I said I'm gonna go try some other boards. So I I, I wrote a LibTech. I really liked it. Yeah. Um. I just bought the skeleton key this past season. 
Oh, I hear that. So that's supposed to be like an East Coast shredder. So that's kind of funny that you got that, but it's a camber, camber between your feet and a little bit of like a scoop in the nose. That sounds super fun. Dude, it was rad. I mean, it's the first snowboard I've bought since 2004, mind you. So technology is a world away from what I was used to. And prior to that, I was riding a Never Summer SL, which is sort of their all-mountain freestyle board, which in 2004, I mean, obviously, Never Summers are known for being bomb-proof. But in 2004, you couldn't break this board if you had a grenade. Like, it's... And it's so heavy as a result. So I went from a 158 down to a 154 skeleton key. Yeah. Well, I'm and 6'2 and I ride a 158. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted something bigger because my board before that was a, a Todd Richards, actually. And it was like a 151. And I was like, I'm tired of riding this short board, you know. And that was my first snowboard ever. So I was like learning on that board, etc. And so I stepped up to a 158 because I was like getting better. I wanted to ride pow. I wanted a little bit more versatility, a less, you know, snappy freestyle park-esque type board. So that's why I got the SL and like the skeleton key is just rad. Like, I love it. I'm glad I, I looked at that one. I, I really did. And again, I think just being the purist, I'm like, you know what? Yeah. Custom camber. If it ain't broke, don't fix don't it. Fix it. And yeah. You know what? I love that fucking thing. Like, Sweet. I love it switch. I love it regular. Like, there's nothing about that board. I, I think my, my riding, like, became better overnight. Or at least I felt like myself again. Let's just put it that way. That's, That's awesome. awesome. You know? Okay, so becoming a proficient surfer out in California, like that, the time I spent out with you guys, completely changed my snowboard outlook. And so I came back to the East Coast, and I was like, I kind of like and I was talking about log wrap, like I, I like soulful carving, like just good surfy turns, like just like really like signing the mountain, like putting my signature out there. And like, I like freestyle. I like, you know, I get loose, like, but it's all about just being smooth and soulful and like in control and just loving it. There's so much more to the fall line and the character of the trail than just going down, especially being on the East Coast and kind of being wave deprived. It's yeah. like the best thing I can equate to it. So anyways, long story short, I went out and I got uh, a board called the Modfish. Oh, which yeah. Which is a Burton board again. Yeah. And I think it's from 2016, 2017 or something like that. But it's like, okay. that's the board I wanted. So I just hunted the internet and bought this Modfish. And I have to say, like, if, if what I'm describing is like a style of snowboarding so is interesting to anyone listening to this, go out and buy a Modfish. That's awesome. I was going to ask, do you miss surfing at all? I do. Yeah. I do a lot. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, uh, of dope products like the Modfish and stuff, like how do you feel about that modern day relationship, if you will, of products and their relationships to like the marketing department? I hope I answer your question, but I might be going on a little bit of a diatribe here. But I think one of the internal struggles that I have with the career path that I've chosen for myself is, am I just contributing to the world's problems, i.e. single-use plastic, more products, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that really kind of disturbs me the most on a regular basis is at a certain point, brands feel the need to keep making new stuff just to keep making new stuff to keep selling more stuff. So I can't tell you how many times I designed a shoe that was the new version of the shoe we did last year that's actually no different than the shoe we did last year, when in reality, all they're really asking us to do is make the shoe from last year, but the new version so they can go and sell it like as new. Yeah, it's kind of like, how do you make old objects the shiny new toy all over again? Right. So it's, you know, it's, I look at like conscious consumption, responsible consumption, like the way I kind of rationalize it to myself is make a great product that people can use for a long time, right? And that's, that's how we should be purchasing things. But having been on the inside, when you see the brief come across your desk that says, just make it 20% different so we can raise the price $5 and sell it as new, when in the end, your audience really just wants the tried and true that they love 
and they've been using forever anyways. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen a brand try and replace a successful product only to come up short and the successful product that's 10 years old is still crushing it. That's got to be such an emotional kick in the nuts. Yeah, it's taxing. It's an emotional business though, right? Like, that's, that's fair. fair. And if you, if you weren't emotionally attached to it, like you're probably in the wrong space. A hundred percent. Because it's because of this repetitious production of these products, right? The whole reason they sell is based on emotion as well. So the design is emotional. The industry is emotional. The consumption is emotional. The usage the is emotional. Yeah, yeah the you message. can't live without this. Well, that's funny because when I worked at Gucci... I used to like when I would talk to my salespeople, I would tell them, I was like, you know, listen, guys, this the, nobody needs these products. It isn't your job to tell them they need it. Your job is to make them feel or question. Your job is to make them question why they f- should feel like they can't live without it. Right. Which, right. I mean, if you're a good salesperson, you do that anyway. But on the same note, it's kind of an emotional kick in the nuts. <laughs> I mean, that was that was a mantra we used to throw around one of the brands was design a product that no one ever knew they needed until they saw it. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's sort of Steve Jobs, right? People don't know what they want until you show them. Right. People start brands, right? And usually those brands get started with like a, this is, this is what we want to be. And it's also, I think as much of that statement, we want to live in the positive space, but it's also what we don't want to be, right? So we have this, this fine line that we're walking between, here we are as this brand, we're presenting ourselves in this way. And the last thing we want to be perceived as is this other thing. And I'm not even going to like start to like attribute qualities to that stuff, because I think you can create a scenario where it's like, I'm standard H, this is what I do. This is what I don't do, right? I think you have a pretty good idea of that. And, and you and I have talked about this stuff. Yeah. But if brands grow, the temptations grow. And becoming sure. and saying no becomes harder and harder and harder, right? So here you are, you're this brand, standard age, let's talk five years from now, we're doing 50 million worth of business, right? And you're, you're saying, how do I grow? How do I become bigger, right? I'm sitting there saying, damn, dude, you're one person who started a $50 million business. Isn't that enough? Right. right? But a lot, of, a lot of people say, no, that's not enough. We need more, right? We need more. So what are we going to do to get more? We're going to make products people don't need. We're going to start pushing shit on them because what else are we going to do? They either are going to rebuy a product they already have or they're going to buy a new product from us. You know, so you start to get into these really compromised situations about how to grow revenue and every, and you know, along the way, you're kind of shedding little values, you know? Yeah. You start to, you start to lose the soul of the product as well, because you're losing your, your own soul. Yeah. I mean, you're quite literally selling your soul. So yeah, I mean the, it, the proof is in the pudding. And when you start making products that really don't define the brand to begin with, they're going to lack that brand identity entirely. And, and there are brands who make that leap and they step into these areas where, you know, whoa, they did that, but they did it in a way that made sense for them with a certain degree of discipline to it and didn't just hoard out. So, so, yeah, I mean, one of the brands that I worked for and have um, still such admiration from a uh, branding standpoint is James Purse. And the fact that he would go off and make said bicycle or said surfboard. And when I opened those Yosemite stores for him, which is like the outdoor activewear line of James Purse, you know, you get these people coming in and being like, he's charging what for this? And the whole implication behind the pricing had nothing to do with him trying to gouge people. It has everything to do with this is the branding and I'm not trying to be a surfboard company. I'm not trying to be a bike company. And that's, that's a really tough thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many consulting relationships I've been in where the person I'm working with is trying to figure out how much the person they're negotiating with is making off the deal. 
Yeah. And they're like, they are racking their brains. This guy's making this much. I don't like him making that much off of me, all this kind of stuff. Right. I said, how about you look at it, not from how much they're making, but whether it makes business sense for you to pay that much. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of what James was saying. Cause don't tell them how much they can or can't make. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, is it worth it to you to pay that price for this? Cause you want them to make money. You want them to be happy with your business because that's how they become a longstanding partner to you. Yeah. If you nickel and dime every step of the way, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate seeing you walk in the door. So I think on the retail level, it's the same kind of deal. Like people who walk into a retail store and say, I can't pay 150 for a t-shirt. Like, you know what that t-shirt costs? It's like, yeah. well, then you're the wrong customer probably. Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he's pretty, I mean, he's not the king of this because you would argue that any luxury brand is the king of this. But the, this that I'm referring to is that if you want something bad enough, you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to pay $7,000 for a bike. That's basically a $3,000 bike that's been powder coated. And if he's getting it at wholesale, it's an even bigger margin. But he's like, look, these bikes are literally props inside the store to market the clothing because this is the lifestyle, right? Right. Or, I mean, maybe they do want to hang their Chanel surfboard on the wall and it's worth it to them like a piece of art. They're well, that there's that to the brand. You yes. know what I mean? Like, yep. Right. Like what's the value of design? Right. And I think it's tough because I, and I say this in a leadership role when I work with design teams, as I say, a lot of the times design is free. Good design is free. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the, the idea that you approach a product and you make a product for a certain price point, well, you could do it and make it look like shit. Or you could do it and you you could make it look awesome, right? right. So I think that's that's the kind of the essence of it all, right? So, and what's that worth, right? So I think that's where it becomes tough. A lot yeah. of people have a hard time commoditizing that. Yeah, yeah. Let's just talk more personal stuff. What was your first car? 87 Honda Prelude. No way. That's such a sick car. Maybe 86, 86 or 87 Honda Prelude. Stick? Yes, of course. Amazing. What color? It's like, it was a black, kind of black with like some stainless steel side panel kind of colors. What, uh, how long did you drive that car for? How many years? A couple years. I mean, that thing was like, it was on last, my leg. last legs. Like, <laughs> yeah. I used to, I used to be driving on the highway, and I would, I would hit the brakes, and like sparks would fly out the the rims and stuff. It was, it was in rough shape, you know. So that, that car made it. I mean, it made it a while. Like ultimately, my, I think my dad used to give me one of our four wheel drive cars when there was like snow, and they yeah. didn't, they didn't cancel school. So I drove um, one of the four wheel drive cars one day, and my dad took the Prelude to work, and he wound up hitting a deer on like a snowy day. And that totaled the car. So that was the end of the Prelude's life right there. Yeah, they probably weighed the same. <laughs> Could be. My dad always blamed me for that. And I was like, wait, like, you just didn't want the new driver driving to school like in a, in a crappy car like that. What, uh, so what are you driving these days? A Chevy Volt and a Subaru Outback. Oh, nice. That's very Vermont of you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty Vermont. It's pretty like New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My wife, my wife has a pretty good commute every day. So she wanted a car that was just like good on gas. She knew, she knew it could go the distance, you know, and the Subarus have a, have a kind of a reputation for running for like 200,000 miles. So she just wanted a good commuter. Sweet. The Volt we have, it's gotten car payment on it. Um, so we're going to run that thing for a minute. And then I think my next car is going to be a pickup. I just need like utility right now. Yeah. What uh, are you thinking? American truck? Or are you thinking like, Tacoma, Tundra. I like the Toyotas. You definitely have to pay for them. Um, yeah. But I also understand why. And yeah. I can't, I kind of think I want like a Tundra sized, just like a little bit of a bigger truck. Right. Um, but it's a Tacoma would be sweet too. I just, I can't, I hate car payments. Yeah. So another passion we share is cycling. Oh Yeah. 
let's talk bikes for a minute. How, how, how deep are you into bikes? Like how, how far back does, does riding go with you? Were you always into bikes like as a kid or is this kind of like a low impact cardio type of I'm getting older bit? I've been into bikes since I was a kid. I, I was probably like 12 or 13 and my dad knew I needed a new bike and I don't think he saw any value in buying me like another BMX bike. So he bought me this actually really rad bike that I have actually downstairs right now. Still my wife rides it, but it's this old Botecchia steel frame bike with Campagnolo components. Really? Yeah. And the, the irony of it is I hated it. I was like, I can't believe you got this for me. Like, I can't ride this. Like all my friends are riding like mountain bikes and like cool bikes. And my dad gets me this like Italian steel frame, like, you know what I mean? Like classic road bike. And I was just like, I can't believe you, dad. It had shifting like down on the, like the tube. It wasn't up on the handlebars, like old school, like all white, like the hoods were white. You know what I mean? And your dad is, does he have a handlebar mustache with wax all over it? No, no, I don't know what, I don't know what possessed him to like, think that this was a good bike for me, but he got it. And that was my bike. And I had a couple friends when I was growing up, they were really into cycling. And, um, one of them actually like went to Europe and rode through high school and stuff, but he, he was like, Oh, sick bike, man. Like we just started going out and riding and we would do rides and it's tough. Cause cycling is not a cheap sport. So I kind of like outgrew, I outgrew the bike and kind of couldn't, keep up with the sport because my dad wasn't going to buy me like a carbon fiber frame you know what I mean and like that's like what it was going to take and so I kind of I don't know went a couple years I tried to get into cycling and in at UVM um and that was like a thing like you either had to be into it or not into it you know and I didn't really know at the time uh so then once I started working as I still wanted to do it my father-in-law does it I mean that the calorie burn is like second to none you know? And, uh, so I dropped in on a bike and I, I haven't looked back. It's awesome. It's kind of funny because I equate the kind of the endorphin rush that I get on a bike, very similar to the feeling that I get surfing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty fluid motion. It's really repetitive. It's, it's a, I think it's like a freedom thing. And I think it's like, a being outside in the environment, just you in the environment, there's no like motorized, you're not being pulled by anything. Right. But, you know, right. And I love cars, but it's just a different kind of experience. And you know, the freedom you feel surfing is very similar to the freedom you feel like on a road, especially once you start going like car speeds. I always mention sort of the meditative aspect of riding and how like, unlike mountain biking where you have to pay attention every two seconds, like every split second, Cause you might hit a rock or a root or slide off the side of a mountain, you know, with, with, with cycling or like road cycling, you know, you can kind of zone out, you know, and just quite literally, as long as you're staying in your lane, uh, you're, you can kind of almost meditate while doing it and get locked in and get in that sort of flow state, which can happen. Surfing can happen. Snowboarding. Yeah. Where like, it can happen driving for that matter. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't tell you the number of times where I've like driven through a mountain pass and being like almost scaring myself thinking, how did I just go through that S turn? I don't even remember turning exactly the wheel. The last 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you wear a heart rate monitor? You know, um, it's funny you should ask because I was online yesterday pricing a new one because mine's been broken. Um, so yes and no, I, I used to write with a heart rate monitor all the time, but since I've kind of gotten back into it over the last year, I haven't ridden at all with a heart rate monitor. So that's the heart rate monitor for me is a must have, at least yeah. in my style. Yeah. And you want to talk about the meditative quality, like through the heart rate monitor, you come into these weird states of meditation where it's how can I exert more and actually recover in my heart rate? Like you start to kind of get to these, like, it's almost like, and and I'm not like an amazing cyclist by any means. Like I'm no pro. I don't race. I don't do anything like that. But the shit that you can make your mind and body do on a bike with enough practice is amazing. Now, mostly through breathing or what are you doing? Breathing, focus, 
what's the regularity of your pedal stroke? How relaxed is the rest of your body? All that kind of stuff pans out big in the end. That's cool, man. Well, listen, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. You and I met each other at a certain point in our lives and, you know, we know each other from that place, but you don't really understand like how all the preceding events have led to this present. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that was really cool. Even just revisiting it with you, there are certain moments where I was like, holy shit, like my dad's business really was the start of all of it. Like, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of like think about, Oh, like I never looked at it that way. So it's, it's been even cool to kind of just, you know, look back with you. Nice man. Well, cool. Cool. Yeah, for sure. All right, Brett. Thanks Wes. Yeah, man. Thank you. No problem. Talk to you later. Okay, buddy. See ya. Peace. Big thanks goes out to Brett one more time. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time, man. It's always great to catch up with you. Uh, as always, thank you to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise cancellation headphones. I will catch you guys in another two weeks' time uh, for another episode of the Standard H Podcast. Hope you all are doing well, feeling healthy and happy, and thanks so much for listening. Take care.